Welcome to the Monday Minute of the Hunt Backcountry Podcast. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in. Steve, how you doing, man? Doing good. Yeah. How was your weekend? It was good, man. Signs of spring. Like, we've definitely been getting some good weather and just enjoying being outside for sure. So, getting uh, getting excited to get out and chase some bears in May. We kind of set some dates for hunt. Jakey's coming out my way next weekend. We're going to run after some turkeys and see what happens. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, getting excited. Nice. Yeah. How about Speaking you? Speaking of Jake, we need to do that. Uh, his final Friday podcast here in the middle of the month. <laughs> yeah. Final <laughs> Friday. I, that was definitely uh, the last, what should have been the final Friday was right in the middle of uh, K4 launch and things were a bit chaotic and just had bigger priorities. That's for dang sure. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, let's dive into some listener questions. As always, guys, thank you for sending them over. We're going to do a mix of uh, different topics today. Some came through from SpeakPipe, some came through from emails. Um, We'll start with one, Steve, that came through from email, and I think is uh, to me it's one of those interesting questions that well we have we I don't know really we have a great answer for because I feel like you and I are pretty standard at this topic. But a question we've gotten a lot. I'll read one example of it. it. Says this question is for both Steve and Mark. After seeing all the big game taken by you guys on Instagram, what are your top? to favorite pieces or cuts of meat and how do you prepare it steve i don't feel like we're very great like examples of all of the creativity you could do with wild game but far stretch from it (laughs) what are your favorites (laughs) i mean for steak is always just the back straps that uh cut up and i like to just trim them up as nice as i can and then uh, lately I've just been cooking them on cast iron. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have the last, Oh, last week I cooked some on the Traeger again, which they were delicious too. So yeah. Uh, honestly, what for me and my family, we grind the vast majority of everything that I kill just because that's what we tend to eat. We just use hamburger for, um, spaghetti tacos, casseroles, you know, obviously making hamburgers. Uh, just, it's like a, for years and years and years, I just take it to the butcher and drop it off and tell them like, all right, yeah, just cut it up how you normally do. And I'd basically always run out of hamburger and then have plenty of, you know, processed or uh, cut up steaks and things like that left over. And so we eventually just started going like, yeah, I just want the best steaks and then grind everything else. And that's kind of what I've been doing for at least 10 plus years now. And it seems to work out well for, for us. It's just what we, what we tend to use the most. Yeah. I do feel like over some of the conversations we've had with guests on the podcast, you've picked up some tips on different things or methods of either care or preparation that I think you've implemented. Um, thinking of things like the the cold water soak, the heavy salting, mm-hmm. which I think was from Bloomquist, things like that. So any, any of those come to mind of like maybe things you've changed in the last 10 years, primarily from hearing from the podcast from guests? Uh, oh, the cold water thing. Absolutely. For thawing out the meat, it does it. Uh, very quickly and works awesome. Um, the that certainly pulling out. I mean, I'm feel so unqualified to talk as a chef here because just not. <laughs> but I certainly um, that pulled that up from Bloomquist. On I'll make sure I'll pull the meat out and set it on the counter for a good hour before I cook it. Right, so it it reaches room temperature and then it's going to cook more evenly. You're going to get um, just a better tasting meat at the end of that. And do that salting at the same time. So just put a bunch of salt on there that hour prior. And that um, 
it certainly tastes very good. Yeah, I'm pretty much the same, guys. We're, I don't know, I'm just very utilitarian. Uh, I certainly enjoy and use a lot of ground um, meat for sure. And then I just do like the steaks, roasts, and ground. And for steaks, for me, those are generally, like you said, Steve, for me as well, going to just be in cast iron. I've just found it for me much easier to to kind of control um cooking a steak and cast iron than even grilling or on the smoker or what have you i would do take for in terms of the smoker i'll take larger sections of either steaks or roasts Mm. and uh, just cook those to 130 ish and what i've really been enjoying especially those those larger cuts right is when you don't get through it all in a meal like with the family or friends or what have you and have these leftovers um, I pretty much will generally only slice what we need kind of for that meal and then anything left over in days following, I'll do like a super thin slice and I've just really been enjoying doing like a, you know, almost like a homemade roast beef, right? But like taking that leftover, whether it's steak or roast, a super <laughs> thin slice, piling some of that on, on like a toasted sourdough or something and just making, it's just makes a super quick, easy lunch. Um, when I'm at home during the day. So that's something I've been doing more just kind of with the leftovers that I've been really enjoying. And I, I don't want to say it gets overlooked, but I don't see a lot of guys talking about necessarily um, that thing. So I, that's very boring and easy, but <laughs> the extent of my creativity there. So it is cool to, you know, look at guys like Hank Shaw, which we've had on the podcast and, um, you know, even Meat Eater has a lot of great resources and all these creative ways to do all kinds of wild things. But uh, for me, man, it's pretty, I just enjoy the basics. I'm a meat and potatoes type of guy and I don't get fancy, but gosh, I absolutely just love wild game. Is there any species, Steve? I know, like, I think you just tend to prefer elk in general, but anything else beyond that, that you've really, really enjoyed or that stood out to you? Um, the subspecies of spike is by far <laughs> yeah. the best. <laughs> tasty spike, yeah. <laughs> tasty spike. Um, by far, by far and away for me. Well, something that I can kill year in year out is you know, yeah, a nice young elk. It's going to taste incredible, and it's a completely different animal than a six point bull, right? Like how that's mm-hmm. going to eat, completely different. I've had really good luck with. I mean, I've had some antelope that I've killed that like spend most of their time in alfalfa fields that were absolutely delicious. I've had white-tailed deer that are really good. I've yet to have a good mule deer. I, I just, I don't know, man. Usually they're just gamey and, and gross, in my opinion. Um, caribou was, the couple caribou I've killed have been delicious. Moose was delicious. Uh, the mountain goat I killed in Idaho, that, I, it was tough meat and I, I ground that into burger and it sounds funny to say it was really delicious burger, but man, it was like, it really that is. was just the flavor profile was really, really good. It was some of my favorite, favorite ground I've ever had. Um, so really, honestly, I, everything I've killed with the exception of mule deer and, and I've been 50, 50 on the bucks we've been killing in Kodiak. Um, one of them will taste good. One of them will be not so good. You know, it's cause we're every time we've gone, it's been November and they're all rutted up. So I think I wish I'd understood more exactly. Cause I think there's some factors that can go into making an animal taste better or not. Right. And that's, uh, you know, are you killing it during its ruts or the you know, so time of year that you kill the animal and then as well as how it's, you know, where it's shot, 
like what exactly how quickly does it die what are the temperature conditions how fast do you get it deboned and cut up and i think there's a lot of things there that i i don't fully understand exactly how much they impact the flavor of the meat in the end yeah the just to touch on the mountain goat because it's uh relevant to me this year having killed one um this past fall my goat from alaska it it is weird like you said to say oh my god it's like it's just burger but it's great because i um i did grind most of my goat but just straight salt and pepper and like creating a burger from that oh some of the best burger i've ever had for sure Mm. um really really stinking good yeah the caribou is definitely delicious and like you said um you know the experiences that you and i have had uh going back i think like 2020 for example me killing a bigger bull and you killing that spike but then we split the meat you know between both of them and having that you know kind of contrast of all right, like same days, same conditions, essentially same meat care, same timing, like you eliminate a lot of variables and you just say, Mm -hmm. here's this older bull and this younger bull. Um, It definitely is a noticeable difference on that meat. And, you know, both, you know, my older bull was enjoyable and good, but yours was like next level good. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, we are pretty boring guys. We do have some really good um, podcasts that honestly make me want to go back and even listen to them now that we've recorded in years past kind of on both meat care as well as some preparation uh, tips and things like that with uh, guests. So I will leave some links to those in the show description if you want to check some out. There's good stuff on like meat care for warm weather hunts and um, just a lot of information um, that we can point to from previous conversations because that has been a topic we haven't talked about in quite some time. So I'll point links to those previous episodes. All right. Next question, Steve came through um, kind of about single man tents, combining the use of a bivy, helping that protect from condensation. Let's dive into this speak pipe question. Hey guys, I really enjoy the show. Um, my question is, I have a single man tent, which is an intense outdoors brand. It's fairly narrow and fairly short and only 50 centimeters wide at the feet end. Sleeping in it with my sleeping bag, it gets very, uh, well, the condensation inside becomes very wet and it makes my sleeping bag quite damp. I had the idea to get an emergency bivy and wrap or we'll put it outside my sleeping bag almost like a bit lightweight bivy bag um do you think that's a way to keep my sleeping bag dry or am i just going to make the condensation inside the bivy bag and make my sleeping bag wet anyway cool cheers fellas all right steve so i think there's a few different variables in here we could speak to just on you know super small tents that are cramped and you have contact with walls um, and then just the kind of the use of a, a bivy within a larger shelter, whatever that shelter is, but using a bivy inside of a shelter to uh, help create some protection as well, which I think that's something you you and Tyler did on your uh, recent Alaska sheep hunt, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we're just using the shell of a Hilleberg and hand and then sleeping in our bivy sacks, which are, you know, just essentially bug protection right like they're not waterproof bivy sacks by any means um but just a really thin sill nylon fabric at the the bottom and then from the foot up to the waist and from the waist up to the head is all mesh so it's really just keeping the bugs off you Mm -hmm. um but yeah that combination has been 
fantastic. So if he has a, uh, you know, for me, it's kind of like, man, you're taking a, a tent and you got issues with the tent and now you're adding a baby sack on top of that from like a, a weight packing perspective. I don't like that. I just, I'd, um, you know, I'd sell the tent and get a little bit bigger one would be my short, quick answer. But if, yeah. um, if he's already got the baby sack, you know, I've seen, I've had buddies put like their rain jackets down there by their, by their feet and things like that, where they're definitely going to be like jammed into the bottom of the tent all night. In general, I would say condensation is annoying, but it's, it pretty much stops there at being just annoying, right? Like it's not, you're not going to get something so soaking wet that it's going to have a detrimental impact on, you know, on your sleeping, right. Or just stuff getting wet. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, if over, you know, like my Alaska sheep hunt last year, where it's like, just if you're dealing with it, you're dealing with a lot of rain, a lot of moisture, a lot of condensation inside the tent, and then you're packing stuff up in dry bags and it stays in the dry bag all day until you take it out the next night, like over that process of a, a week long hunt. Yeah. Your bag's just going to get progressively like more and more damp and lose its loft. And that could create issues, but on a shorter trip, it's kind of a, you know, a moot point in my opinion. Yeah, I'm kind of the same with you, Steve, of I feel like and from what I hear in this situation, adding the bivy is not addressing the problem. Um, you know, one thing that I've run into in the past with single man tents is just realizing that obviously they're not all the same, right? The livable space within a single man backpacking tent can vary greatly, especially for someone like myself. I'm 6'2", so in terms of length, in some single man tents, I'm going to have plenty of length and in others, I'm going to be quite cramped and my my foot into my sleeping bag or my head end is kind of always going to be up against fabric. Um, and then obviously looking at that being one thing, but then also as you're sitting up um, is what type of headroom, what type of shoulder room, what type of mobility do you have? And that's where, you know, condensation can occur and exist. And there's certainly things you can do to help prevent that both with the shelter design, the shelter setup, um, you know, the breathe, uh, the breathability that you're creating through that. And then obviously site selection, there's a ton of variables with condensation, but when it does exist, becomes sometimes it's hard, if not impossible to avoid the size of your shelter then is going to dictate how much contact you have with that condensation, whether that's while you're sleeping or potentially even just getting up and moving around and starting to pack up and, um, you know, maybe it's changing a layer, maybe it's packing up your camp, like your sleeping bag, your uh, sleeping pad and all that stuff where you're going to then create more contact with the condensation and actually get things uh, wetter than if you did have a little bit more space to move around without contacting walls and things like that. So to me, what I'm hearing with him is this tent is pretty cramped and he's just having a lot of contact one thing i'd add just from personal experience out there backpacking a lot is where you set up camp can have a drastic impact on the amount of condensation yep. you you want to be away from the basically the valleys right like even even within a 30 foot radius like if you're if you can kind of get on a little bit of a high point versus being down a little trough that's going to make a difference uh, if you can have anything over your head, um, you know, if I can find a place to throw my bivy sack underneath a, uh, you know, overhanging pine tree limbs, man, I wake up completely dry uh, the vast majority of the time. So 
and then just being yeah more anywhere wind can kind of and you know if it's not gonna be windy uh, anywhere airflow can get through the tent so just higher up on points is is going to reduce that condensation there's a, there's a lot of things you can do that have a a really huge impact on how much condensation you wake up with in the morning regardless of tent or baby sack design yeah so the other thing with that too is he mentions a bivy is just uh and you kind of mentioned this steve with yours it's when you throw out the term bivy it's like okay what is the construction what is the material what is the coverage because they're not all going to provide the same level of uh, protection from moisture so even using the blanket term bivy in this concept like it could be helpful um, it honestly could be harmful if you're again decreasing airflow breathability um, things like that so to me it sounds like the bivy is kind of a band-aid solution i would in this situation personally uh, again just based on past experience with super cramped tents i'd just be looking for something with some more space as well to allow me to move a little bit um, and not have so much contact so all right steve let's dive into uh this exo kind of related question that came through from speakpipe as well hi uh mark steve my name is matt i'm a long-time listener and really enjoy your podcast so thank you very much I'm an Eastern hunter, um, that also have hunts out West. Most of my Western trips are, are backpacking, uh, trips. Uh, but back home, I'm a saddle hunter. Uh, I currently have a pack from one of your competitors that I use for Western trips that I'm trying to, you know, use as a saddle hunter as well. And it just doesn't work. I have a really hard time, you know, hooking up the, you know, platform and, and sticks that are needed for the saddle hunting on that pack. Uh, so I wanted to see if your pack, uh, or if you're aware of anyone that's using your pack in a manner that would accommodate both. Uh, I really don't want to buy a separate pack, uh, that I'll use exclusively for saddle hunting. I want to kind of have one pack, uh, that takes care of both, uh, my Eastern and Western hunts. Uh, so, you know, but hope you can help me with that. Again, appreciate all you do on your podcast and uh, look forward to hearing your response. Thank you. All right, Steve. So I'm sure you're so excited to talk about this. How much thought did you give into saddle hunting or tree stand hunting when designing packs? Um, obviously zero. The, yeah, excellent. <laughs> um, there's certainly inherently in the design, though, the simplicity of of how things work that it just opens it up to a lot of different uses right um because it's not i don't know the right words but very um yeah it's just gonna it's gonna be very simple and easy to use and and he could i don't know i don't even know what's required in saddle hunting because it's not a tree stand right like some some climbing sticks or you go out there and thread some pegs in and climb up a tree yeah, there's variability, right? So yeah. um, I threw that at you tongue in cheek, of course, because it's something you don't look at. Um, we do, number one, I've done it, um, so I can speak to it a little bit. And then we do have customers doing this all of the time for saddle hunting or tree stand hunting, uh, using our packs in the exact scenario that this guy mentioned of, hey, I live you know, out east or in the Midwest, do a lot of whitetail hunting, and then go west you know, once a year or something like that. And clearly, you... If you can get away with it, you want one pack to do everything. Um, and even though we didn't design 
anything within the exosystem specifically for whitetail hunting, tree stand hunting, saddle hunting, et cetera. They work incredibly well, as you said, Steve, because just there's a lot of versatility there. Um, so one I'll say to this guy is I'll leave a link in the show description on an article that one of our customers wrote on how he uses his pack for saddle hunting, but just to throw out a few things kind of in the design that work really well, both for saddle hunting, um, and then tree stand hunting is with, you know, with the, the bag detaching from the frame on our systems, that creates a natural place to put in a saddle platform or a tree stand is between the bag and the frame. And then one thing that guys have kind of asked about in the past is, Hey, I'm going to the tree. I want to be quiet. They've seen it's like as particularly in K3 in the past where they see that the top of the bag connects to the frame with Velcro. And they're like, I want to eliminate that noise. I don't want to have to be peeling apart Velcro. And it's actually something you wouldn't want to do is make that Velcro connection, not only because of the noise, but when you put something between the bag and the frame, you don't need to bring that bag back up over and connect it to the frame. So if you're unfamiliar with our packs, I'll try and keep this explanation very simple and and help you picture it. But if you're saddle hunting or tree stand hunting, you can have a saddle, platform, climbing sticks, et cetera, between the bag and the frame. And it's just four quick release buckles and you're done. You have access to all that. There's no Velcro. There's not a lot of like unthreading this and threading that. It's literally four quick release buckles, two on each side um, that are holding everything together and then disconnecting quietly at the tree to access that. So it works really well. Um, a pretty common scenario would be, as I mentioned, to have the tree stand or the saddle platform between the bag and the frame. You could have climbing sticks um, attached to the sides of the bag or the face of the bag. Again, we have compression straps for that. We have locking buckles if you need them for K4 as well. Um, so it just works really stinking well um, for that. And then just a just on the topic of whitetail a little bit in general, one question we get a lot um, is on like what bag size to go for. Because a lot of times guys are thinking they want a bigger bag for their trips out west, but they want a smaller bag for the whitetail uh, woods, which makes sense in the early season. But one thing to keep in mind as well is even though you may only be going to the tree for you know a handful of hours or even a full day sit, as you get later into the whitetail season, it's a cold hunt. You're stationary, so you need good insulation layers, but you don't want to wear those insulation layers in as you're hiking to the tree. Is our bigger bags, that bag you may want for the Western hunt, call it the K4-5000, works really well when you start getting into like October, November, December in the whitetail woods, and now you have bulkier insulation layers, whether that's extra coats, a full bib set, things like that. So a lot of times you guys actually do end up using the space of the larger bag, even for, uh, you know, just a whitetail hunt in the tree for the day, if they're getting into, you know, the colder weather, hunting the rut, things like that. So that's a few things kind of on whitetail hunting um, with our packs. Uh, again, I'll leave links to the show description or leave links in the show description on kind of that blog article, which has some cool photos on how that customer uses his pack for saddle hunting. And then if you have other questions, as always, just reach out. Um, 
All right. One more, Steve. Uh, tackle really quick. Did you consider the NX8 scope when you also looked at the NXS scope? What made you choose one over the other? Uh, things like magnification range, first versus second focal plane, etc. So I know we've talked about the NXS, but did you look at the NX8 or consider that as well? Yeah, just size and weight, uh, weight yeah. being the, the big one. I think the NX8's 28 to 30 ounces. I've got mm -hmm. a 4 to 14 SHV, which I really liked first focal plane. Still have it sitting out in the gun cabinet. Um, but again, it's 28 ounces. And so I, I'm trying to build a super light rifle um, or I won't say super light, but lightweight. The, you know, those just that half a pound was, you know, more than I was looking for. I was really looking at, you know, basically there's a lot of scopes, uh, Leopold VX5. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think what, what some of the other ones that I was looking at. Uh, the Vortex Light Hunter. LHT. LHT. Yeah. Those are, yeah. they're all going to be in that like 18 ounce range, right? 16, 18 ounce. And then, um, so I was kind of looking for the best scope I could find in that range. And I knew Night Force, probably, it was I, under the assumption everything Night Force did was super heavy. And then I stumbled on that NXS scope and I was like, oh man, for two ounces more, I can have a Night Force. And uh, yeah, I I know I've had this conversation with a lot of guys just because I so strongly recommend that scope. And so many people get hung up on that. It's only 10x magnification and man, it is not a downside at all so long as you're not shooting super long ranges right like at 600 yards i'm perfectly capable to shoot any animal out there with that i mean i shot a fox on kodiak two years ago when we went up there last time uh at like 550 yards right like uh, it's really good really good glass really fine nice crosshairs like i have no problem shooting those longer distances at only 10x and that's in some ways a benefit right because i can spot my spot my hits impacts um and make corrections if needed versus being you know zoomed on an nx8 you know that shoots all the way up to 28x or something like that you know if you're uh, just natural i think tendency for people to think they need to zoom all the way in you're you're never going to spot your impact yeah um echo a lot of that i've looked at nx8s as well and have shot them um like you said, for me, it's more magnification that I need. It's more weight that um, is unnecessary for me for what my needs are. Um, and then on second versus first focal plane, you know, I think in a perfect world, I would like to be on a first focal plane scope. But what I struggle with is just reticles like at those lower magnifications, because I don't want to shoot on a higher magnification than I quote unquote need. I tend to favor trying to shoot in that lower zoom range. And sometimes those reticles based on the lighting conditions, based on your background, what you're looking at, those first focal plane reticles at the lower magnifications just get really tough at times. Um, illumination can help with that um, and helping you have visibility, but you know, that's not always something practical. It's not even necessarily as illegal in certain States. Um, so for me, it's just that hang up on, kind of still wanting that perfect first focal plane reticle, which I haven't found yet. Um, and I don't have, you know, I'm used to shooting second focal plane at this point. Um, so I don't have major reservations about doing that. And then one thing to tie 
second focal plane into zoom range is when you have a scope like the NXS that maxes out at 10x and your second focal plane, you know, your 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 subtensions, your reticle is most relevant at max zoom range, right? So when you pair the fact that the max zoom range is actually pretty low being 10x, it's actually more usable versus scopes I've used in the past that are second focal plane and let's say go up to 16 power. And it's like, well, I don't want my scope to be all the way up at 16 to actually use the reticle on a second focal plane. So it's kind of nice again that the NXS is going to max out at 10x and I could be at 10x if I really wanted to and have that reticle um, be legitimate at that point being second focal plane. So those are nitty gritty details. And if you're not a scope nerd, I may have just lost you. I apologize. But for the guys who are considering <laughs> it, some things to think through. Yeah, 100% agree on all that. As always, guys, thank you for the questions. We're happy to answer them, whether that's gear, hunting, packs, etc. Um, send them our way. Send an email to podcast at xmongear.com or look for the link in the show description that says leave a message and you can leave us an audio message via speak pipe on whatever device you're using. And then finally, if you haven't yet, uh, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically. And we'll talk to you soon.